is the value of humanity? And what about our planet with its diversity of inhabitants? Religious systems of belief, certainly including the Abrahamic religions, position our world as the very center of purpose in the universe. But for those of us with a broader view of the scope of the universe, those of us who reject fundamentalist conceptions of who we are, the soul, life as a test for salvation and the great reward of a sublime post-life in heaven, we are confronted with the smallness of our little blue planet in the scheme of things. We recognize how finite we are. Should we assume, having rejected the religious framework with its intelligent and purposeful design, that we are not special after all? Surely the earth did not take form to provide us with a foundation upon which to walk, nor the sky to make for us a secure and sustaining roof. But consider from our vantage point, standing in the ruins of civilizations past, which have left for us their libraries of wisdom and ethics, their universities of reason and science. What is it that we in fact might be, we human conscious beings? We are descended from apes, from whom we inherited brotherhood and cooperation, but also barbarity and warfare. We certainly elaborated on both sides of our animal nature as we built our city-states and our kingdoms. We developed trade and agriculture, language and writing, art and music, engineering, and systems of justice. We also developed slavery and genocide and environmental exploitation. But the foundations of our ethics have helped us to bring about change as we continue to do in order to realize a more just and flourishing world. In Enlightenment Now, Steven Pinker highlights the great progress that we have made in improving the well-being of the whole of humanity. To me, whatever your religious or political view, you should acknowledge at least that human empathy and morality are vast improvements on the priorities of our distant forebears. We have seen that we have the capacity to make things better in the world, as well as to make them worse. It seems to me that this observation lays a great responsibility on us to determine the quality of the future for our people and our planet. To me, the key is to care about and protect the continuation of sentient beings. Consciousness is what makes this paramount. There is no tragedy in the bombardment of some empty celestial body with asteroids or in the implosion of some star whose system contains no life and no potential to produce it. But the destruction of our planet, the violent division of our people, represents a lost opportunity. The story of Earth is still being written, and we are collaborators in its authorship. There is a view known as panpsychism, which holds that consciousness is essentially ubiquitous in the universe. Panpsychism, in its most extreme form, represents one far end of a spectrum of ideas with regard to the commonness or rarity of consciousness, with the other extreme claim being that consciousness is not even a shared feature of all humans. This latter position was proposed by Julian Jaynes in his book The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, in which he argued that consciousness is generated by the linguistic capacity to produce metaphors. Jaynes writes, quote, We have said that consciousness is an operation rather than a thing, a repository or a function. It operates by way of analogy, by way of constructing an analog space with an analog eye that can observe that space and move metaphorically in it, unquote. He concludes a bit later, quote, For if consciousness is based on language, then it follows that it is of a much more recent origin than has heretofore been supposed, unquote. James lays out the radical position that ancient people were not conscious at all. 
So we see that, at least in principle, arguments can be proffered intelligently and rationally in support of notions ranging from consciousness is in everything, to consciousness is common to many animals, to consciousness is only right here among the most modern of humans. I described in the first episode of the podcast my starting assumptions for the exploration of consciousness. My assumptions were one, that the material world exists, two, that I exist, I am a mind, three, that other conscious beings exist as well, four, that consciousness arises from the brain, and that five, it does so by physical means. It's worth pointing out that I do not assume a biological brain just like ours is necessary for the production of a conscious mind. A machine that enabled the right functions, in my opinion, one which is arranged in a highly integrated manner with the capacity for differentiation of subsystems within it, would amount to an artificial brain. Thus, I maintain my fourth assumption. David Chalmers, who gave us the phrase, the hard problem of consciousness, argued in favor of property dualism, to the effect that it conferred subjective experiences onto anything exhibiting information. In his book, The Conscious Mind, Chalmers writes, quote, To focus the picture, let us consider an information processing system that is almost maximally simple, a thermostat. Considered as an information processing device, a thermostat has just three informational states. One state leads to cooling, another to heating, and another to no action. So the claim is that to each of these information states, there corresponds a phenomenal state. These three phenomenal states will all be different and changing the information state will change the phenomenal state. We might ask, what is the character of these phenomenal states? What is it like to be a thermostat? Certainly, it will not be very interesting to be a thermostat. The information processing is so simple that we should expect the corresponding phenomenal states to be equally simple. There will be three primitively different phenomenal states with no further structure. Perhaps we can think of these states by analogy to our experiences of black, white, and gray. A thermostat can have an all-black phenomenal field, an all-white phenomenal field, or an all-gray field. But even this is to impute far too much structure to the thermostat's experiences." Unquote. From a neuroscientific point of view, this idea is absurd. Recall that human consciousness is limited to certain structures of the brain, namely certain highly integrated networks of the thalamic cortex. And not only that, but human consciousness is limited to conditions of asynchronous firing states as characterized waking and dreaming. The cerebellum acts completely outside of our conscious mind. I have explained that this occurs because while it is massive and composed of a huge number of neurons, it is organized in a parallel feed-forward manner. So according to what Chalmers suggests about extremely simple information systems like the thermostat, we would have to agree that the cerebellum is loaded with consciousness, but not our consciousness. There are millions of parallel networks in the cerebellar cortex, each sophisticated compared to a thermostat. Wouldn't that imply that there are millions of independent minds in the cerebellum? Chalmers writes, quote, The view that there is experience wherever there is causal interaction is counterintuitive, but it is a view that can grow surprisingly satisfying with reflection, making consciousness better integrated into the natural order. If the view is correct, consciousness does not come in sudden, jagged spikes with isolated complex systems arbitrarily producing rich conscious experiences, Rather, it is a more uniform property of the universe, with very simple systems having very simple phenomenology, and complex systems having complex phenomenology. This makes consciousness less special in some ways, and so more reasonable." Unquote. 
The philosopher of mind John Searle responds to this argument in his book, The Mystery of Consciousness. I always enjoy reading Searle because he talks sense. Searle writes, quote, It is to Chalmers' credit that he sees the consequence of his views. It is not to his credit that he fails to see that they are absurd. In general, when faced with the reductio ad absurdum argument, he just accepts the absurdity. It is as if someone got the result that 2 plus 2 equals 7 and said, well, maybe 2 plus 2 does equal 7. For example, consider his account of Ned Block's Chinese nation argument, which I mentioned earlier. Block argues against functionalism as follows. If functionalism were true and functional organization were sufficient for having a mind, we could imagine the population of China as a whole carrying out the steps in some functional program for mental states. One citizen per neuron, for example. But the population as a whole would not thereby constitute a mind, nor would the population as a whole be conscious. Chalmers's response is to bite the bullet and say, yes, the population as a whole constitutes a mind, and it is a conscious as a unit. It is one thing to bite the odd bullet here and there, but this book consumes an entire arsenal, unquote. I agree with Searle. To me, on my mission to account for consciousness in the universe, I feel that we have a deeply perplexing and engrossing mystery. I feel that panpsychism of this sort compounds the mystery rather than reducing it. I want to know how my brain produces me. I am subject to a unified composition of conscious contents that make up my ongoing subjective life. Considering the characteristics of my consciousness, I seek to learn what in neuroscience and in physics and analytic philosophy could account for them. By evaluating the evidence from cognitive psychology and neuroscience, I limit the problem, discover its borders, and narrow in on the answer. This is inspired by the Crick and Koch approach of seeking the neural correlates of consciousness. Add to that the great theoretical and experimental work of guys like Massimini and Tononi and Bars and Dehane. This led me to formulate the temporally integrated causality landscape. The David Chalmers argument winds up sounding like something out of Star Wars. You must unlearn what you have learned. Consciousness flows through everything. It is what binds the galaxy together. Bollocks. I've been heavily influenced by Integrated Information Theory, IIT, which, like Chalmers, attributes a connection between consciousness and information. For IIT, though, there is not a simple linear relationship between causality and consciousness. So Giulio Tononi and his colleagues are not busy worrying about what it is like to be a stone when a cold rain falls on it, or a nail when the hammer crashes on its head. Christoph Koch and Giulio Tononi discuss the implications of IIT in an article called Consciousness Here, There, and Everywhere. They describe IIT, writing, quote, The central identity of IIT can be formulated quite simply. An experience is identical to a conceptual structure that is maximally irreducible intrinsically. More precisely, a conceptual structure completely specifies both the quantity and the quality of experience. How much the system exists, the quantity or level of consciousness, is measured by its phi max value, the intrinsic irreducibility of the conceptual structure. Which way it exists, the quality or content of consciousness is specified by the shape of the conceptual structure. If a system has phi max equals zero, meaning that its cause-effect power is completely reducible to that of its parts, it cannot lay claim to existing. If phi max is greater than zero, the system cannot be reduced to its parts, so it exists in and of itself. More generally, the larger phi max, the more a system can lay claim to existing in a fuller sense than systems with lower phi max. 
According to IIT, the quantity and quality of an experience are an intrinsic fundamental property of a complex of mechanisms in a state. The property of informing or shaping the space of possibilities, past and future states, in a particular way, just as it is considered to be intrinsic to a mass to bend space-time around it." Unquote. For the sake of this discussion, I will try to simplify the preceding pa passage. For IIT, a system is conscious to the extent that it is composed of irreducible cause-effect power. Further, the greater the amount of irreducible cause-effect power, the more conscious the thing is. IIT differs from my framework, the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, in a subtle but important way. For IIT, a system having integrated causal power exists intrinsically. It exists to itself. From my perspective, this has several imp implications that I don't like. The first is that one brain might be inhabited at a given time by more than one conscious mind, each having its own subjective experience. This is so because there could be more than one irreducible system coexisting there. And each, according to IIT, will exist to itself. Secondly, the point of view and the contents of consciousness are inseparable for IIT. The system serves as both the point of view and the qualia intrinsic to it. Finally, IIT implies that conscious systems may be very common indeed. By contrast, for the TICL, a system has a level of integrated causality, but it is not composed of that set of elements across which the highest degree of irreducible cause-effect power occurs. According to the TICL, the system has a non-zero level of integrated causality. Subsystems within it have higher levels of integrated causality. These subsystems are experienced from the point of view of the system in the form of specific conscious contents. So what Tononi and his colleagues would call a system, I would call a subsystem. And thus, the substrate of consciousness is larger in TICL and has two necessary components, the point of view and the contents. This view constrains the existence of conscious minds to much more specialized conditions. For the TICL, consciousness is a rare commodity in the universe. On the topic of current theories in panpsychism, Victor LeMay recently wrote in an article published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, quote, current models of consciousness all suffer from the same problem. At their core, they are fairly simple, too simple maybe. The distinction between feed-forward and recurrent processing already exists between two reciprocally connected neurons. Add a third and we can distinguish between local and global recurrent processing. From a functional perspective, processes like integration, feature binding, global access, attention, report, working memory, metacognition, and many others can be modeled with a limited set of mechanisms, or lines of MATLAB code. More importantly, it is getting increasingly clear that versions of these functions exist throughout the animal kingdom, and maybe even in plants." Unquote. Later in the article he writes, quote, Functional and neural definitions of consciousness, as currently formulated, thus direct us towards a rather panpsychistic view where all animals, and possibly even plants, would be conscious, or at least express the unconscious-conscious dichotomy. One may even start to worry over cultures of neurons in a petri dish, or slices of cortex, or hippocampus, as often studied in electrophysiological experiments. Note that IIT in particular would probably assign higher phi, and hence consciousness, to such preparations than to flies. Another obvious extension would be consciousness in artificial intelligence systems. It has been argued that current AI generally lacks mechanisms for global access 
and availability of information, or for metacognition, so that fears of conscious machines are premature. Others, however, have opposed this view, arguing that many AI systems in fact do have these properties, either in rudimentary or more advanced forms. Moreover, if conscious experience is better explained by recurrent interactions or information integration, we may already have created conscious machines." Unquote. According to the TICL, there is no principle excluding the possibility of producing conscious artificial intelligence in a machine, but constraints upon its design would make such a device more difficult to produce than what is implied by IIT and other theories. Koch and Tononi write, quote, IIT was not developed with panpsychism in mind. However, in line with the central intuitions of panpsychism, IIT treats consciousness as an intrinsic fundamental property of reality. IIT also implies that consciousness is graded, that it is likely widespread among animals, and that it can be found in small amounts even in certain simple systems. Unlike panpsychism, however, IIT clearly implies that not everything is conscious. Moreover, IIT offers a solution to several of the conceptual obstacles that panpsychists never properly resolved, like the problem of aggregates, and can account for its quality." Unquote. I too am inclined to assume that consciousness is widespread among animals, but I suggest that the physical requirements for producing a conscious mind are more constrained than what modern theories have been predicting. You and I, alive today, are literally part of a continuous line that goes all the way back to the simplest bacteria. Think about the fact that in your line of offspring, back to parents and all the way back, there was never a gap in the continuity of life, not once, for one day in the three billion years of division and reproduction. And somewhere along that line, conscious experiences began to be felt. In time, we began to see and hear and feel. From then on, being meant something. Conscious beings are the loci of meaning in the universe. Perhaps this is a view that bleeds into the spiritual, if not in a literal sense, then at least in spirit, as it were. For all we know, we earthlings are the only conscious beings there are. As far as the matter and energy in the universe goes, we are certainly part of a rarefied constituency, even given the plausible case to hope for alien life. And finally, consider the kind of meaning that we are capable of. Even beyond mere conscious being, we humans in this universe are in a position to explore it, to ask it questions, to wonder what we are, and from whence we've come. Mm -hmm.